Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. I'm joined today by Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine expert who works with clients around the world through his telemedicine practice. He specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease. Dr. Will Cole was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation and is the author of Ketotarian, Inflammation Spectrum, and most recently, Intuitive Fasting. In this episode, we discuss all things optimal wellness, gut health, inflammation, and intuitive fasting. He talks about how fasting is a template to learn about your body, giving awareness for how both food and fasting make you feel. Dr. Will Cole shares about his approach to food peace through doing less, not being perfect, eating the right foods, both fats and carbs, as well as health food for the soul. Keep listening to learn more. Dr. Will Cole, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. I'm so honored. Oh my goodness. Thank you, my friend. I'm super excited that we get get to talk today. Thank you. So you are just one of the people that I always turn to for all of my knowledge. You're just such a wealth of information and I love your approach to health and wellness. It's so accessible and you make it really easy, I think, to understand. Um, Thank you. I try to. You know, so much of what I do with patients is I'm talking 10 hours plus a day and a lot, you start to learn how people receive information and and what resonates with people or how to say things in a way that's a little bit more succinct and easy to digest. So I appreciate that. It's definitely a passion of mine because it's one thing to know what's clinically relevant, but it's next thing to actually, how do you empower somebody so this makes sense and clicks with them? So then it's not like this because this doctor said to do it. It's because it makes sense. You get excited because you can be a part of this, this health journey for yourself. And yeah, it's just an empowerment process. So I appreciate you noticing that. Absolutely. So at Purely Elizabeth, our goal is to help you thrive on your wellness journey. And as a functional practitioner, that's something that you certainly do every single day with your clients. So I would love to start with really what started your wellness journey to become a functional practitioner, but maybe Mm -hmm. even just take a step back first. And for those who don't know, what is a functional practitioner? Yeah. So I... I'm a functional medicine practitioner. I, I, we Just to give people a little bit of background on what I do, uh, I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So for the past 12 years, I'm consulting people via webcam like we're talking now, and we just drop ship labs to them, and then I'm providing them a functional medicine perspective, and then clinically monitoring them and coaching them and guiding them through this time. So we're not replacing their primary care physician. We're not place, replacing their specialist. We are just working on their health from a functional medicine perspective to give people answers on why they're struggling with their health issues and giving them tools to to start overcoming them and having agency over their health. So that's what I do. And what functional medicine is, in short, it's evidence-based alternative medicine, which I don't think that really that definition does it quite justice. But to expound upon that a little bit, First thing is we run more comprehensive labs. So we're looking at sort of the root confluence of factors that give rise to things like metabolic issues or inflammatory problems, hormonal problems, autoimmune issues, digestive issues. 
these these sort of issues are people that I that I spend my time with and trying to figure out the components of their health issues. And every case is different. So it's definitely almost like a clinical Sherlock Holmes sort of thing where you want to f- keep an open mind and be intellectually flexible on what the variables are and start with the good comprehensive health history and really digging deep and giving it the thoughtfulness and the due diligence that it deserves and and then getting the data and getting multiple labs perspective from their vantage point like what's going on here what is the pieces to their health puzzle why do they feel the way that they do so we see the chimp the symptoms as sort of the check engine lights on on a car we know the check engine lights on but why like if the fatigue's there or the weight loss resistance there or the hair loss is there or the digestive problems are there, but why? So the labs would look, that's that proverbial under the hood data that would give us that information. And then we look at labs, even the conventional labs, we look at them in a different way. So anybody that's listening will know when they get their lab, they have their number, and then they're being compared to this reference range. That reference range is based off of this statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs. So people that predominantly go to labs are sadly people that aren't feeling so well. They're not the healthiest population. And there's a lot of people that go to their doctor because they know intuitively like something's not right here. I'm fatigued. I have these symptoms. I have these weight loss resistance or hair loss or whatever the case may be. And then the doctor says, they run the basic labs and the doctor says, everything's fine. You know, you're just depressed. Here's an antidepressant. You're just getting older. You're just a new mom. You're just stressed. I mean, whatever these well-intentioned reasons, you know, they, how could you be having these symptoms basically despite these normal labs? And what they're unintentionally telling you is you're a lot like the other people with health problems that we're comparing you to on that reference range. So we're looking at the optimal range, which is a thinner range within that larger reference range. Where does vibrant wellness reside? Where does optimal health reside? That's where your body is functioning the best. That's where we get our name, functional medicine. So we're looking at optimal, not average, and comparing you to optimal, not average. So we can find out the, the gradient, the spectrum, the gray areas that give rise to these symptoms, these check engine lights. And then we realize we're all created differently. And there's not going to be this broad sweeping, cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to getting healthy. And you could have a hundred, you could have a myriad of people with all the same set of symptoms, same diagnosis code, same more or less things that they have going on. And what's needed for one case is not necessarily needed for the next one. So you have to look at the full complexity that makes them them and makes them feel the way that they feel. So that's what I think a better way to describe functional medicine, a more long-winded approach, but I think it really sums up what I do where we're really giving people answers and giving them tools to start feeling better. And how I got involved with this is I've always been interested in health and wellness. So I grew up in a, my parents were interested in health and wellness. My dad was a bodybuilder in the eighties and nineties and Hey, you know, when you're a kid and that's your parents, you just think that stuff's normal. And like my dad was like in these competitions where these guys would be lubed up with baby oil and like speedos, and you know, it's <laughs> like like that's just your normal life. And then he was interested in health and wellness. So I remember going to the like very young, going to the co-op at that time where you basically had two sets of like granola as like that's like that was the entire uh, thing. And they and that we ate. Well, we ate the healthy foods that were available at that time. And now there's so many options out there, so many amazing options that the, the world has changed quite a bit in the health food industry. But so I, I, I knew very young the way that I ate was different than the way that my friends ate. 
And then that evolved to me wanting to be trained in this. So I went to Southern California University of Health Sciences, which is like an integrative health school where there's MDs and DCs and acupuncturists and oriental medicine doctors and nurse practitioners all learning their craft. And I knew like when I graduated, I knew I wanted to be in functional medicine. And I started writing about it and speaking about it before there were many of us that were talking about it. And before the Cleveland Clinic had a functional medicine center before the Institute for Functional Medicine was even around. It just was like a field that I was passionate about. And I started my practice as telehealth. So I've been doing webcam consults my entire career. So that's, that's my story. You were, you were quite a visionary, especially to be doing telehealth 10 years ago. And I'm sure everyone's appreciating it so much today. Yeah, I got all the phone calls when the pandemic hit. Like, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, it wasn't a visionary in my mind. Like, it was just born out of necessity. I mean, you know, I'm in, sure. based in Pittsburgh. And I'd be speaking about this stuff. And it was just born out of like, okay, you are where I'm not. So I needed to get you access to this. So it was just people in different states and countries needed access to this. They would reach out to us because we were one of the earlier people having conversations about that. So it wasn't even called telehealth then. It was We called it a virtual functional medicine clinic because we didn't have the words for it. Telehealth and telemedicine happened later. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's great because I, as we were just talking, I've convinced my mom to come and chat with you. And as you were talking before about that line of optimal wellness versus average, I think she's such a good example of someone who has kind of just been living with issues. And so many of us do that. We think it's normal to mm -hmm. have a stomach ache every morning or after eating a salad and those things aren't normal. And so really no. finding someone like yourself to be able to diagnose what is under lining cause is key. Yeah, what's causing it? You're so right. I mean, people, so many people to settle for feeling lousy and they're looking around at their friends and they're, and then you, you know, it's very easy to find someone worse off than you. And then they just settle for it. Like, Oh, I'm okay. It's just part of like life. I'm just stressed. I'm just busy. I'm just getting older. Just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. And people need to realize that just because it's your everyday doesn't mean you should settle for it. And that's a message that I want people to have those aha moments for themselves because, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started out the books with quizzes. And when I wrote Intuitive Fasting or The Inflammation Spectrum or Ketotarian, I wanted to, people to, I adapted questions that I asked patients so people can actually have that aha moment for themselves because they'll think, oh my gosh, I deal with it every day. I just settled for it. I thought that was normal. I have yeah. those moments all the time with people and they start to question or at least raise awareness about their bodies. They're checking in with their body. And just because you can push through it and get through it doesn't mean that you should settle for it or it's even normal. Absolutely. So what would you say most people, obviously there's a million reasons that people come and see you, but what are some of the most common currently issues that you're seeing in your practice? Well, most people have some that I'm seeing are somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum where they could be diagnosable. They, and some, many of them are, have been diagnosed in conventional medicine already. So they're coming from a, for a functional medicine perspective and tools to deal with these issues. Uh, and for people that are maybe new to this conversation. I mean, autoimmunity itself immune so the immune system turns against itself. And there's over a hundred different autoimmune diseases that we know in science today that they recognize as having, that are autoimmune. And then there's a four, 40 different health problems above that 100 that have autoimmune components to them. So I, 
as time goes on, what researchers are finding is that there's more autoimmune components to more things that we never thought were autoimmune. So even things like osteoarthritis or heart disease, they were never seen as autoimmune. But now there's studies looking at these at least autoimmune components to things that were just seen as chronic inflammatory issues or chronic degenerative issues. And that's a lot of my people. And the, or it's people that are on that spectrum where they're not diagnosable, but they're symptomatic. So there's three main stages or phases on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum. On one end, it's silent autoimmunity or silent inflammation, you could say that. And that meaning they're symptomatic, they're asymptomatic, they have no symptoms, but there are, if you ran labs, you'd see things that were off. You'd see things like markers being off, but the person feels fine. And then phase two is the autoimmune reactivity or inflammation reactivity. So meaning they are symptomatic, they don't feel well, the labs are off, but they're not bad enough for mainstream medicine to say like, this is what it is. This is the diagnosis code. And, and look, by the time someone's diagnosable for chronic health problems, whether that be an autoimmune condition or a metabolic issue like type 2 diabetes or heart disease, et cetera, researchers estimate it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis is when things were brewing on this inflammation spectrum. It didn't happen overnight. So I'm seeing people typically either in the, in the inflammatory reactivity stage or they're full-blown, they're diagnosed already. And that looks different for different people because there's over 100 different autoimmune conditions. So it can be neurological autoimmune problems like MS. It can be autoimmune digestive issues like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, or even just on the other end of that spectrum of IBS and bloating and things like that, acid reflux. And then autoimmune hormonal problems like Hashimoto's disease, autoimmune thyroid issues, or endometriosis and adenomyosis, which are autoimmune conditions impacting female hormones. Uh, And then there's non-autoimmune issues too that are just inflammatory, like metabolic issues and weight loss resistance and fatigue and brain fog and stuff like that. So that's stuff. It's complex stuff. And we see a lot of these complex layers to those symptoms, like, like things that can be driving the inflammation, like mold and biotoxins and Lyme disease and co-infections to Lyme and uh, food reactions, food reactivities. So it's definitely, I I don't get the simple stuff. I get the beyond the basic stuff that they've seen. They've kind of exhausted conventional medicine. They've seen a lot of good people within the the alternative world too. Most of my patients are very well read and extremely erudite with this stuff. So they're not like, they know, don't eat junk food. They're beyond that point, but they are still struggling. So we're looking to take it to the next level. What's missing here to really give it the attention it needs. That's great. Thank you for that overview. Switching gears a little bit to your newest book, Intuitive Fasting. I just finished reading it a couple Uh of weeks ago and you. you have convinced me to do a lot of things. A, I've been doing each week of the fasting protocols. You've got me drinking Earl Grey tea, but I, I think... What I love about the book is that, again, it's super approachable. I like how you mix in the science to really understand the why behind it and then the giving the practical tools and tips to really be able to take it from there to your home and make those adjustments. So I'd love to get into the details of the book and really start with what I found at the end to kind of be my aha, which was all about food peace. And mm. so getting to the root of like this book isn't about weight loss, it's not about, yes, that could be a a part of it, but ultimately it's about food peace and having that intuition and talk to us about that. 
Yeah, oh, my goodness. Thank you for recognizing that. I think that that's what I wanted to interweave throughout the entire book is as its name implies on the front end, just the cover title standpoint is intuitive fasting, which is a conversation in and of itself because it's paradoxical to the average reader, the average human being, because these metabolic issues that I've been talking about, the different inflammatory problems, I mean, it's mo- most human beings today have a massive blood sugar problem. It's like six, seven out of 10 people, like about 60, 70% of people have, they're somewhere on this insulin resistance spectrum where they have hangriness, they have insatiable cravings, they have chronic inflammation, they have weight loss resistance, they have fatigue, or they have more diagnosable blood sugar issues like type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or things like PCOS. So that's a major problem. And when you're bound by cravings and hangriness, fasting will not be intuitive, nor will mindful eating really be natural for you either, because you're going to be bound by the next craving and that next sort of urge to like have something to create some short-lived balance of because you're on this blood sugar roller coaster. So I, I really want people to get to the place of calming that noise in their body so they can actually hear that still small voice of their intuition and have better signaling pathways. Their blood sugar is more balanced. Their gut brain access is more improved. Inflammation levels are lower. Those are all stuff on a physiological health level that will create a soundness, like sound physiology is fertile foundation for knowing what your body loves and what your body hates. So that's what I'm talking about when I discuss food peace, this concept that I talked about in passing in ketotarian and in the inflammation spectrum. But I wanted to have a bigger conversation about this because it's such a central part of what I think is sustainable wellness. Because it's not about these, these are the things I can't have or like these are the things I have to eat. It's not about that. It's about no, I love feeling great more than I missed something or thought that I missed something that didn't make me feel great. So it's this free will agency over your health where it's, it's, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's just sound awareness of what serves you and what sabotages you. And, but you have to calm the noise to have that discernment and blood sugar imbalance, inflammation, all of that stuff is proverbial noise in the body that will make it really hard to discern what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So by using food in specific ways, using flexible intermittent fasting, these are tools to calm the noise, to have that resolute awareness, body awareness and awareness and, and, and heal that relationship with yourself and heal your relationship with food and how you even see food. And, and, and yeah, so it's an important conversation because when you get that right, you at least start to get that right, wellness will be sustainable. It won't be this short, short-lived fad crash thing. It'll just be like a knowingness that will propel you for, for months and years to come. Yeah, I think it gives you that flexibility and just confidence in what you're choosing yeah. and what you're not choosing. And it kind of even goes back to what we were saying earlier about being in touch with feeling quote unquote normal or not. It's like, if you don't even have that piece of it to understand what's happening in your body, it's hard to have that food piece and that place Mm -hmm. where you really know, like, am I hungry? Is this a craving? What is this? I thought it was interesting when I, I did the 20 and 22 hour fasting and I did it over a weekend versus the weekday. And during the weekend, it was when I stopped and got those hunger feelings, it was like, am I bored? 
Mm. Or am I actually hungry? And of course, on the weekend, it was boredom versus during the week, those same feelings weren't there because I was busy working all day. Yeah. It was great to be able to listen to your body to do that. Yeah. I loved hearing that. So I think using fasting and food as a mindfulness practice and as a meditation, I think is a central part of intuitive fasting because it is. You can start re- growing in awareness around food and fasting and you learn so much about yourself. So you're not only using fasting as a medicine, as a therapeutic tool to do a lot of important things for your health, but you're also using it as a mindfulness practice, which is so important. So you're dealing with the physiological stuff as well as the mental, emotional, spiritual stuff too, which is fasting has been used for all of those purposes for throughout human history. So a big part in the book is talking about metabolic flexibility and that being that central core to um, the health and the fasting. Can you talk to our listeners about what that is and what that means? Sure. So metabolic flexibility, we're all born into. It's our birthright. All babies are born burning fat for fuel and burning sugar for fuel. Babies are all born actually burning ketones to fuel their brain. And then over time, we lose that birthright and we lose that metabolic flexibility. So we're uh, stuck in this sugar burning mode and they can't really ever become fat adapted or they don't, they've never given their body the chance to redeem that or reclaim that birthright of metabolic flexibility. So it has to do with the way that where our bodies are designed from an ancestral health perspective, researchers estimate that the majority of our genetics haven't changed in 10,000, over 10,000 years. Yeah, our world has changed and the way that we live our life has changed very dramatically in a very finite period of time when you're putting that into context with the totality of human history. So the foods we eat, the foods we're not eating, our stress levels, our exposure to things, our, our, all of these things are these epigenetic modulators are, are really constantly and dynamically influencing genetic expression. So intermittent fasting is a one tool and, and food as nutrition in very specific ways. What are ways we can be in more alignment with our biochemistry? So our DNA isn't living in this brave new world out of alignment. We can decrease that chasm between genetics and epigenetics. We can decrease that evolutionary mismatch, which researchers refer to it as. This is a major central tenant of researchers explaining why we're seeing this epidemic rise of different inflammatory problems and metabolic issues and autoimmune issues and mental health issues because our world has changed very much and our DNA really hasn't in 10,000 years. So when you have metabolic flexibility, it's really just how our body is is supposed to be. But we've lost that because of that genetic epigenetic mismatch. So metabolic flexibility is ability, ability to burn fat and burn sugar for fuel. So the analogy that I use in the book that we use in the, in the functional medicine space is that, that sugar burning is like kindling on the fire and being fat adapted or burning fat for fuel is having a log on the fire. Both are needed for the optimal energy. You don't want to just have kindling and you don't just want to have a log either. So that's the problem with both sides of that conversation. People that say, oh, like, well, doing keto and fasting isn't good for people. Well, it's how are you doing it that works for you sustainably? Because have a log on the fire is actually really important for optimal energy. It's more sustainable. It's more slow burning. But you don't want to just have the log. This is time and place for the kindling or the clean carbohydrates. So we do a cyclical approach throughout the book it's not it's very flexible so we can increase those clean carbohydrates to have that burst of energy when we need it and and more because we enjoy it and we want to have the flexibility to do that too 
So how do inflammation and gut health play into metabolic flexibility as well as just overall like that being the root of all of our issues? Yeah, so it's true. I mean, I mean, you look at chronic inflammation, it's the, the commonality between just about every health problem out there. When people think about inflammation, sometimes it could be this abstract, nebulous term. But what it really means is, I mean, it's a product of the immune system. It's not inherently bad. I mean, we need healthy, balanced, measured inflammatory responses. The problem, because when it is balanced, let me say this, when it, when it is balanced, inflammation fights off viruses and kills off bacteria. It's in a Human, the human race would not be here without healthy inflammation responses. The problem is that inflammation is thrown out of balance. I mean, there's so many parallels that I, I think of what's going on globally when you look at climate change and what's happening to the world. There is individual microclimate changes in the form of chronic inflammation. It is like individual climate change in the form of chronic inflammation. So that is exactly what's going on is there's a disturbance of balance in our own ecosystems, our own physiology uh, in the form of chronic inflammation. So that is inflammation too high for too long, sort of this forest fire that's burning in perpetuity. That's the issue because that is what's linked to autoimmune conditions, anxiety, depression, diabetes, heart disease, hormone problems, digestive everything. problems, everything. So people think, oh, it's just the inflammation is like the sore joints and the, and the muscles. Yeah, it's that, but it's so much more than that. I mean, it's a lot of people. 75, 80% of the immune system is in the gut. So you can't really have a conversation about inflammation, which is a product of the immune system, without talking about the predominance of the immune system actually resides, which is in the gastrointestinal system. So to talk about gut health is not to, just to talk about digestive health, even though that's a major part of that. To talk about gut health is to talk about immune health, to talk about inflammation health, and talk about brain health too. I mean, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut and stored in the gut. And a lot of our hormones are converted in the gut too. I mean, 20% of the thyroid hormone is converted from T4 to T3 in the gut, in the presence of a healthy, balanced microbiome. So you, you're talking about gut health, you're talking about digestive health, immune health, hormone health, and brain health. It is essential part to so many people and they have to understand it. And people think, well, I go to the bathroom all right, like maybe it's not a major digestive symptom, but you don't have to have overt digestive symptoms to have underlying gut components to why you feel the way that you do. And people need to realize that it's beyond a just... Uh, on, on bowel movements, right? Uh, it is way, it's even though that is a part of it. And many people, I mean, that's a whole conversation about common and normal too. Many people will yeah. be like, oh, I'm fine. But when you actually dig and people are embarrassed about talking about it, but when you keep asking enough questions, you find out that actually what they thought was normal was just common. It was there every day. Back to that earlier concept. So two questions on that. One, obviously there's a lot of things that we can do for our gut, but do you believe everyone as at a minimum baseline, like should be taking a probiotic, should be doing, what are those like absolute musts for everybody? I don't think everybody needs to be on a probiotic. No, I, I think that food is first, right? I mean, that's why I just love what you put out in the world. I think that you can't supplement your way out of a poor diet. And people think that they can. And supplements can be great tools, but they're really not going to be the same 
foundational stuff that I want people to get in that sorted out first. And that doesn't mean that probiotics don't have their place. And it doesn't mean that other supplements don't have their place, but I think they should be like the next level of like, let's get this sorted out. Now, with that said, let me just say this being a clinician, I have patients. Most of my patients are extremely compliant, but you get the random person that's not compliant at all. Normally it's a spouse of a patient. (laughs) It's not my patients, but it's the spouse and I hear about them and they're like, they didn't change their diet at all, but they're taking a few of the supplements and their lives do improve dramatically. But then I think, okay, how much better would you feel if you actually changed the foods that you eat too? Because your body is somehow resilient enough to like take this capsule and improve how you feel. Awesome. But like, come on. But yeah, it's normally it is like the husbands of my patients. But the um, things that are good, really good to think, consider for your gut health. Number one would be having uh, foods, lots of raw vegetables. Here's a good one. Well, having a lot of raw vegetables can be great, right? They could be good fiber, antioxidants, polyphenols, lots of stuff for good for your body. But some people that have gut problems do better with cooking your vegetables down and not having so many raw. That doesn't mean you can't have any raw. It just means try to cook more of your vegetables down, have soft cooked vegetables, have have maybe pureed vegetables for a time if you're extra sensitive digestively. Think more soups and stews that are gentle. That's already sort of pre-broken down for your gut. I think that's a good tool. I think that if you want to use food in, in a targeted way to support microbiome diversity, it starts with vegetables that are cooked down because it has fiber, which is good prebiotic foods for uh, your gut microbiome diversity, but it's doing it in a gentle way. Uh, I think that broths and, and the bone broth itself can be restorative and calming to the gut and quite easy to digest and assimilate. And the protein is really easy to absorb. I love your collagen products for that reason. So I think that's one of the most well-tolerated protein sources out there. And I think that also having fermented foods can work too for people, but it is a very therapeutic food medicine, right? I mean, and sometimes people go too much too soon for for those foods and they think, oh, it's not for me, right? And they just have to start off more judiciously and start with a little bit on the lower side. So things like coconut yogurt, kefir, kombucha, kvass, sauerkraut, those are things that people can start off low and slow, but that could be a nice tool to have. I think blended uh, like smoothies can be good too, to easy to digest, like having not those at every meal per se, but you can get a lot of nutrition in and it can kind of easier to digest just like the soups and stews. And yeah, so I think that those are some core things that people can think about. Some people do need to go a little bit lower FODMAP for a time, which I don't want to get super granular on that, but those are fermentable sugars in some foods. Acronym, it's a FODMAPs is an acronym. It stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. These are fermentable sugars in some foods. So for a time being lower FODMAP, basically limiting things like onions and garlic and lots of cruciferous vegetables can be beneficial for a time. The goal is not to be low FODMAP forever and ever. It's to fix the underlying GI issue so you can bring those things back in. Because I mean, believe me, onions and garlic have lots of nutritional benefits. But for a time, even these healthy foods, and that's the bigger conversation about functional medicine. It's even healthy things. What works for one person may not be right for the next person. So that those are some things to consider. So one question back to the inflammation conversation. So for somebody, as you said earlier, who may have some underlying inflammation but has no symptoms, like if they were to go get their labs done, 
what is the one thing or two things that you're really looking for to say, okay, I've got an inflammation problem? Some really basic ones that you can run, and we run them from patients, but you can also get, I mean, these are conventional labs that anybody's GP or PCP can run. Number one would be high sensitivity C-reactive protein. In functional medicine, we want them. We, we, we want HSCRP to be under one. The American Heart Association, the CDC, have their low average and high relative risks for cardiovascular events. That's how they word it. But we're running it to look at, A, yes, of course, your risk factors for those things, but also just a good baseline of how inflammation could be. And remember, this is really important for people to understand. You can be in a state of inflammation but HSCRP still be normal. So keep in mind that HSCRP is just one way to measure one type of inflammation. It's an amino acid. That's not inherently bad, but just like I mentioned earlier, inflammation too high is problematic. So lower levels of HSCRP is normal. We want it under one, but it's spiked HSCRP, which could be one way to, to, to gauge your inflammation. But remember, it's not the totality of understanding inflammation in your body. So I see many people that could be in active flares with their autoimmunity and HSCRP is normal. So it's one way to measure it, but it's not the only way to understand it. Homocysteine is another inflammatory marker. We want it to be under seven. Above seven has been shown in some studies to increase blood-brain barrier permeability or contribute to neuroinflammation. It can act as a neurotoxin, basically. Above 10.6 or so, or even 11 to 14, I mean, you'll see the more the conventional numbers because, again, that reference range is based off of that average of people who go to that lab. But homocysteine markers, they're typically running it to look at cardiovascular, heart attack, and stroke risks again. But in functional medicine, we want it to be optimal, not just average, which would be under seven. And uh, so those are good ones. Ferritin is another good basic one. It, it has to be understood into context with the other iron markers, but it is a biomarker for stored iron. But you can see ferritin spike in states of inflammation, it's considered a, an acute phase reactant. So basically in states of inflammation, you can see ferritin spike. But look, you, you can also see iron overload spike ferritin too. So you have to understand the iron levels with iron saturation and serum iron and total iron binding capacity and things like this. But you can see ferritin spike too with inflammation. So those are some core basic ones. And then in functional medicine, we can get a little bit more granular with things like uh, calprotectin and lysozyme, these gut-centric components to inflammation that many people have. We can look at intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome, which can drive inflammation levels. So of those levels, like the basic numbers are normal. These more advanced or uh, expanded labs can give greater context. So interesting. It's mind-blowing, really. And it, I, the body is mind blowing. I think that leads me to my next like mind blowing part of the conversation, which I love how you talk about this in the book. Of we can talk about optimal wellness, like eating all the right things, yet we can have inflammation because we're stressed out, and we can have it from like those day to day stresses that we can do all the right fasting and eating, but it also comes down to stress. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that and. Personally, how do you de-stress? What are some of your favorite ways? Sure. Yes. So I look, and I'm quite cognizant of this topic when when I'm talking about this, and I give all like the tips and the science behind stress and inflammation in the book. And then some people will say, "Look, now you're just making me. Now I'm stressing about not stressing. <laughs> like you're just telling me adding one more thing for me to do." And sometimes it's 
not doing more things is actually doing less things and yeah. getting like actually doing less. And that's really the conversation here. It's not, I'm not saying, well, you have to do more stuff to not stress. No, it's probably just doing less and having healthier margins in your life whenever you can. And it's not being perfect either. The body is amazingly resilient. We're talking about little micro changes that can do powerful things in your biochemistry, like lowering inflammation levels. So don't, I don't want to stress anybody out about not stressing, but you made me feel less stressed actually. Thank you. Stress. Thank you. I was you. like, Oh, I can just go walk outside and yeah, you know, do it's the basic trip. stuff, basic stuff. It's not stuff that's unaccessible. A lot of it's free or very low cost. It's not some magic, like high end thing you need to do. So the first thing that people need to realize is just like you said, you could be eating really solid, like super good food, super healthy, anti-inflammatory food, whatever. But if you're serving your body this big slice of stress every day, it's like this decadent junk food that's going to raise inflammation levels just like that, that whatever junk food that you're talking about or that inflammatory food. People need to realize that it's not about what they're just serving their body with their every meal. It's what they're serving their head and their heart, which will also impact their body. So this is the bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our physiology. People need to realize that this conversation, we like to separate mental health from physical health, but mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our body, just like our stomach is, just like our anything else is, our thyroid is. So you can't really say toxic stress or unhealthy work environment or unhealthy relationship, like that's just a mental health issue or even things like anxiety and depression, even if it's non-situational, even if it's somebody just has anxiety and panic attacks or depression or fatigue, that also is physiological. There's a whole field of research referred to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. It's cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. How is inflammation impacting how your brain works? How is inflammation impacting your mental health? So neuroinflammation or brain inflammation is associated with things like anxiety and depression and fatigue. So we have to look at how the external stuff, situational things, um, uh, you know, thoughts and emotions, impact our physiology because stress will raise inflammation levels up. Trauma can raise inflammation levels up. Unhealthy things in your life situationally will raise inflammation levels up and impact your gut microbiome, impacting our hormones, impacting lots of things. But then conversely, the underlying gut issues that may be driven by different food issues or insulin resistance that can be driven by different food issues or whatever you're talking about physiologically, like in your body, that stuff will impact how your thoughts and emotions are. They will, that will impact anxiety and depression and stress levels. It will make you less resilient. So we have to look at both sides of the coin, that bi-directional relationship. We have to deal with the physical stuff, and that's kind of what we've been all been talking about. But the mental, emotional stuff, the things that we need to start bringing like health food for the soul in and, and stillness are very simple things. I, I call them in intuitive fasting. I call them metaphysical meals. Like, well, we're talking about intermittent fasting. So what, what do you do when you're not eating? Well, humans would have used fasting as a meditation for a long time and a spiritual practice. So that's what I wanted to do. Even with these flexible intermittent fasting windows, like was it just about thinking, like you said, like on the weekends, I'm bored or like, what am I doing? Or they're stressed about not eating or they're stressed about their life. Can we bring some stillness into your life? Can we bring some things to start supporting the parasympathetic, the resting, the digesting, the hormone balance state? Because we're always in the sympathetic, the fight or flight and stress state. Can we start to recalibrate that a little bit? So there's so much compelling research in the scientific journals looking at things like 
You mentioned getting out in nature. The shinrin-yoku is the Japanese term for it. It's forest bathing is how it's translated. And it doesn't mean just going and hiking, which is therapeutic in and of itself, but it's actually using nature as a meditation, actually going out in nature and taking in the sense, taking in the sights, taking in the, the all, with all your five senses, taking it in and using nature as a meditation, which helps to lower inflammation levels and helps to lower stress hormone levels and starts to re, re shift, start shifting the body into this parasympathetic state. It's completely free other than your time. Or we can bring nature inside and bring like I have an essential oil diffuser there. And actually there, a lot of the research looking at forest bathing, Shimon Yoku is actually saying that essential oils from nature has part of that restorative therapeutic calming effect on the body. Well, you can, if you can't get outside or if it's cold or if you live in an urban space, like bring in a, a diffuser with some pine scents or something like that, or bring some plants in. Research shows that just looking at pictures of nature can have a calming effect. Oh, wow. So it's, it's very, I mean, you get, they get down to even the, even just the vision of it will improve it. And it's exponentially more if you can immerse yourselves in it, of course, but, uh, or, you know, it's, it's improving your creating a space, like whether you're in your office all day, your home office, or you're at your work, creating a space that is conducive to, to, to calm, like cleaning up clutter and, and making your space like an outer representation of how you feel. Because oftentimes outer clutter can create inner clutter. So just clean up your space up, have it a, a, a sacred place, place for you to be productive and be calm. And looking at sleep hygiene and making sure you're sleeping well and calming in the evening, like turn technology off a couple hours before bed, maybe blue light blocking glasses before bed to start to activate the parasympathetics to make sure you're getting enough restorative sleep at night. There's so many things that the researchers are exploring and I try to put a lot of this stuff in, in the book. So which of all of those is your personal like go-to? Yeah. Yeah. So you could only do one. You were like, okay, I only have time for one thing today. What would it mm. be? Yeah. So all the things that I said, I do all of those things, but I don't do them all the time. And it's only something that I have to do. Again, this flexibility, you should have these things that serve you as tools in the toolbox. And then you pick it up when it works for you. It works to your schedule for that day. It's not something you stress about. You're just, it, you're in the moment and it works for you. You have to be intentional with these things and build habits. Yes, that's true. But if you are aware, and that goes back to that mindfulness uh, practice is using all of these things as mindfulness practices. Once you get good at building these habits, it won't be something that you will. It's not something super strict and arduous. You just pick it up. So if I had to pick, I love my essential oil diffusers because I'm consulting people inside all day long. Uh, so I, I have like, typically we have some sort of pine sense diffusing in the clinic here. And I, we go on walks at lunch as the, the team, most of the team goes together. So we walk through the woods here in Pennsylvania and on our lunch break. <laughs> I love that. So we'll, we'll do like, uh, so that's good. And then I'll tell you another one that's very much part of my day. And that this is every day is we start the day off with a meditation. So I think that that is not something that's super abstract or esoteric. It's just breathing exercises to center yourself, but we're also going over the clinical, like, like the cases for the day and being, how can we be of active service to our patients for that day? So it's a gratitude practice. It's a present moment awareness practice, and it's a breathing practice too. Uh, you can do it by yourself, but I do it with my team here. So those are all things that people can do. 
That's super helpful. I think really to your point, like finding something that works for you and not feeling overwhelmed. I think for so long for me, like meditation was not something that I enjoyed, I could do, and that was okay. Then I found the other things. And now recently I've gotten back into trying to do meditation. Yeah. Well, I mean, we just have to think, how can we, what are things that get you out of your head and into your body? And that, that's what you need to realize, meaning getting out of your assessant, repetitive, ruminating thoughts and into your body. Uh, and there's a lot of, Eckhart Tolle, the author, he calls them gateways into the now, gateways into the present moment. It could, there's a lot of things that can do that. Even physical activity can do that for some people. When they're doing yoga or they're doing- The Peloton. <laughs> I know you're a big Peloton fan. Yes, we need to talk about that. So yeah, it could be Peloton. Like what gets you into your flow state and and find that and be consistent with that. All right. So shifting gears a little bit more into intuitive fasting, just really tell me who this book is good for and like who would benefit. I I know most people would all benefit from it, but Mm -hmm. really tell me who you think this would benefit and... What do high level the fasts look like? Sure. So I really both wrote this book to be accessible to for most people. So it's it's something where I even put a lot of my clinical experience in it. So people can adjust it accordingly. I mean, you know, because you read the book, but like there's even the protocol is malleable for someone's intuition. It's so adjustable and flexible that it really does meet you where you're at. So I would say most human beings, statistically, if you're talking about seven out of ten people having a major metabolic issue it's going to be the majority of human race, statistically. Anybody that's looking to regain energy, if they're struggling with fatigue or brain fog, if they're stuck at a weight loss plateau, or if they're stuck at a health plateau, like there are many people that don't have to lose weight, but it's just their fatigue or their energy levels, their brain function is at a plateau. I think it's summarized very eloquently by Paracelsus, who is one of the fathers of medicine. I quote him in the book. He calls He called fasting the physician within, which I think summarizes it more eloquently than what I'm trying to say, is that whatever the problem is, is are you able to tap into these pathways in the body to take your health to the next level? So that looks different for different people, but it's a therapeutic tool. But also because we're integrating these mindfulness practices with it, it's so much more than that. It's a mental, emotional, spiritual component of it too. That's just as important oftentimes as the physical stuff because it impacts your physiology. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a lot of people. And then what the protocol looks like, and, and maybe people, when I say, when I the book's called Intuitive Fasting, and then we talk about the protocol in the book, they're like, well, what the heck? He's telling, talking about intuition and he's giving us a protocol. The protocol is a template to learn about your body. So just like that yoga class, when you're at the beginning of yoga, you have to have a class to get good at the practice and the art of yoga to learn about your body, become more flexible on a musculoskeletal level with yoga. Well, you're, if someone's metabolically inflexible, it's like going to that yoga class and not having flexibility. So you have to show up to the practice to gain metabolic flexibility, to get a rootedness in your body and awareness on how food and fasting makes you feel. So once you gain some metabolic flexibility and experimented with this, then you will be able to evolve the protocol to suit you because we're all different and that's the heart of functional medicine. So it's a springboard for you to learn about yourself. And then from there, you'll be able to evolve the the protocol and you'll say, oh, I felt better here. I'm going to do more of this. 
next time around. I'm going to do a little bit less of this next time around. And you'll be able to adjust it in real time for yourself. And then even as you get even more advanced at this art of living like this more mindfully, you'll be able to adjust it even on the day of. You may think, oh, I'm going to do this like 18-hour fast because I feel so good doing it. But you're going to wake up and say, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm not going to do it today. And that's what I did yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, I do it all the time. That's all right. That's the intuitive component of this. You'll be able to mindfully eat and intuitively fast, not because it's something that you're following a protocol, but because you just use that protocol as a springboard to learn about yourself and and improve your health too. So I have a very personal question on that. So if you, I was trying to do a 20 to 22 hour fast yesterday and by hour 18, the day was intense at work and I was like, I just need something to eat. And so I listened to my body and I did, but my question is in that 20 to 22 hour fast where it goes much more on a cellular level, like, are you at 18 getting those benefits? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not... It depends on the person, right? But even if you look at some of the researchers looking at just the 12-12 fasting eating window, they, they're looking at autophagy just through one night's sleep, just fasting through the night, which is what we're doing in week one and week four anyways. So it's, it's even those lighter fasts, you're definitely supporting autophagy during the night when you're sleeping. So if you're even digging even deeper than that, you would, you would suppose that the autophagy is still being supported. But the longer the fast for these times that aren't used every day, these are targeted therapeutic tools to support a deeper autophagy, a deeper stem cell supporting, deeper longevity benefits. That's what that week three is in the, the, the dealing with those more long-term things. You're building longevity and building pro-youthful pathways that you don't do all the time, but you do intermittently. Perfect. All right. So we're going to wrap it up with some rapid fire Q&A. Awesome. Ready? I love it. Yeah. Okay. Favorite fat. You can only pick one. Avocados. Favorite protein. Collagen. Favorite carb. Granola and peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter and granola. Yeah. Something that brings you joy. Um, nature. Nature brings me joy. Three random things that you're currently loving. It could be book, podcast, mm. product. Yeah. Uh, what am I liking? I, I like, I love Peloton. Can I give Peloton a sure. shout out? We have fe- fellow lovers of Peloton. I lo- especially love Rebecca Kennedy's weight classes. Me too. She's so good. She's so smart. And so I, I, I like that. I love... You know what I love? I'll, I'll give some shout outs to people who sent me things. I, I love all of your products, Jimmy. It's like, I love Purely Elizabeth. Let me just say that. Um, I love the I love the collagen oatmeal. I love that your peanut butter granola tastes so good. I, are these you. things always out? They are. So I, I'm they saying are. things that I am like, I don't know if it's a seasonal thing, but like, and I love the... The other one that I love that I get at Target is the cinnamon. It's like a pumpkin cinnamon. Pumpkin cinnamon granola, oh, yeah. My gosh. You're yes. so nice. Thank you. Yes, I love that. But I'll give some other like things that I love that are just like on my desk. Barbara Sturm sent me I, – I have these uh, – anti-pollution drops that oh, I, put I have those too oh cool i love it so i'm like at a screen all day consulting patients so she gave me these drops that i put on and it like is like this protector against being afraid of blue screens all day long so i'll give that a, a, a I, i've been loving that and 
Dr. Gundry sent me these polyphenol pearls. There, he tells a story about these olive oil. This is not rapid fire, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's it's okay. high polyphenol olives, which is like super antioxidant. Doc, my, my second favorite fat would be extra virgin olive oil. But anyways, those are huh. some things. We'll have to check those out. Yeah. What do you want more of in your life? I, I want to cultivate a deep, uh, more, I want a, de- a deeper peace on things. So when things don't go my way and I'm prone to like getting in my head and worrying about something and controlling it, I want to like have a, this deeper resolute stillness. Cause it's easy to be saying that you're, you know, uh, trying to do these mindfulness practices when things go your way, but like the real mindfulness muscle happens when you when things don't go your way. So I'm better than I used to be, but I have a ways to go. So I want to I want to keep getting stronger in my deep knowingness that everything's going to be all right. I love that. What do you want less of in your life? I want less worry about things that don't matter because I look back at my life and the things I fretted about that I was thought was all consuming in the moment, I look back and you can barely think about them. Yeah. You know, as how many how many hours do we spend worrying about things that are so inconsequential? And I have this the personality that is just like I'm running a clinic and I'm doing lots of stuff and I, I most of the stuff that I stress about I don't need to be stressing about. It's a great motto. Yeah. A meal that you'll never forget. Hmm. <laughs> All right. I'm going to tell you something. Like I have a lot of good recipes in my books. Like I love these avocado fries. You, we, we, yes, back with the world, fries. when the world was together, we, we go to revitalize in Arizona and you've had those avocado fries. Those are amazing. At the Ritz Carlton in Arizona. And I put that recipe in the book because of revitalize. Cause I was, when I was working with the registered diet, the RDs for the book and the curating the protocol and everything, I was like, I really want avocado fries because this tasted so good. So they're avocados with they're sliced with they're breaded with almond flour, this chipotle aioli dressing. The recipe that's in the book is literally just because of revitalize that in Arizona that we go to with mind, body green. So that's, I, I, I love that meal specifically, but I'm going to talk about something so frivolous real fast. It's, I, it's like my favorite treat. It's it, the Siete tortillas that you heat up and it's the cassava flour, not the almond flour ones and peanut butter. And you, and you just get some jelly in it too. And you make these peanut butter burritos, peanut butter oh. jelly burritos. I'm like a six-year-old <laughs> kid, but it's like, that to me is like, there's like the gummy, like it's, it's so freaking good. So I, 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 some people come over to my house, I make them, we call them peanut butter cheeks because you get peanut butter all over your face, but it's, they're so good. <laughs> that sounds like Kevin. I love that too. <laughs> your favorite wellness hack. Hmm. I mean, I, I think what comes to mind is intermittent fasting. I think it's one of my favorite hacks and it's completely free. So I see it as a hack no matter how you eat. So I, I, I obviously advocated specific type of way of, because I'm talking about clinical nutrition and health and wellness, but like you, the f- research shows that if you eat, no matter how you eat, if you eat clean, intermittent fasting is a great way to enhance and upregulate those pathways like autophagy and lowering inflammation and supporting your gut health. So it's pro- at least, and, and I am also, I'm very immersed in the research now with the book. So right now it's my favorite health hack. And your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey. 
Yeah, well, this is an adage, an ethos, a core ethos of my work with my patients is you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into wellness. And I think if you start to get your head and your heart right on why you're doing these things, then it could be an act of service to you instead of it be a source of abuse or obsession. I think that that is core stuff. It doesn't mean you have all sorted out, but it means you start becoming aware and mindful of why you're doing the things you're doing. Having food peace. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dr. Will Cole, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This was an absolute pleasure. We'll have to do it again. Yeah. Where can listeners find you? And everyone has to pick up a copy of your new book. And where can listeners find you? you? Yeah, everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. They can order intuitive fasting, the inflammation spectrum, ketotarian, all there clinical practice, the telehealth center is all there too. And yeah, on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.